I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. You're done with your Oreo? <laughs> yeah. I'm done with my Oreo. Okay, good. Um, Do we really know what happened? The brother did. The brother, that's what I thought too. I mean, that seems like kind of obvious. Hey, do you want to talk about death? Yeah. I mean, I stuck in murdery thingy thingy Ooh, sorry. <laughs> Starting off with a burp. Happy Wednesday night, everybody. It's uh, it's Wednesday night. We're. Uh, should we have some wine you know? later? Oh, yeah. Let's. It's, should we have some late night wine after this? Late night wine. Ooh. Welcome to Mystery Murdery Thingy. Welcome to Mystery Murdery Thingy. Who are you? I'm Mario. Who am I? You are Chloe. That's true. Good for you. And um, what was I going to say? Oh, um, are you going to do a Mystery mm-hmm. Murderer Thingy? Oh, mine is, it's like mostly a thingy, I think. Mine's murdery. Yeah. That's what you told me. <laughs> Good in. Cool. Um, who's gonna go first? I don't know. I don't really I don't care. Re- oh, I'll just go first then. Okay, I want to listen. Okay, I like to listen. And you do it so well. What does that mean? It means that you're attentive and you're uh, engaged and you're a great partner in all ways. Aww. And I love you. Stop. Okay, and now I'm gonna talk about a skeleton lake. A skeleton lake, or it's called Skeleton Lake? It's known colloquially as Skeleton Lake. So 5,000 meters up in the Himalayan mountains in uh, this sort of northern district of India. Oh, so it was cold. Bordering Nepal. Very cold, very dry, very remote. It's miles away from the nearest town. And it's also this very creepy site, right? Um, Known as Skeleton Lake or Mystery Lake. Um, but known to the locals as it has been for like, you know, whatever, forever. It's like one of these places, right, where the people who are from there know about it, but then the wider world didn't find out until later. Um, it's known as Rupkund Lake, um, like in the area officially. And it came to kind of a wider prominence in uh, 1942 when this game reserve ranger named Hadi Kishan Madwal happened upon what he thought was, like, this really gruesome scene, right? Hundreds of human skeletons Uh. just strewn haphazardly in and around this six-foot-deep lake, a small lake nestled in this small kind of hidden valley between a a peak and and kind of a bluff. Um, His uh, macabre discovery was... um, you know, it it was also kind of a, a happenstance, right, or whatever, because um, it, it like I said, it's very remote. It's like only visible. Um, also, the skeletons are only visible for like about a, a month every year, because it's so cold that it's like frozen for like yeah. almost the whole year. So it was one of these kind of like warm summer days when the ice does melt, and you can see hundreds. People think between 300 and 800 uh, uh, persons, you know, remains perhaps um, on the shore, kind of strewn around, like I said, and also under the water. 
So it's kind of like uh, the bog bodies, if you recall, uh-huh. where you can kind of see it like through the water, and yeah. on, it on some of them there's still flesh. Right, those um, are extremely well preserved. Yeah, that's very well preserved because of the the cold uh, and also the the dryness of the environment. Um, so yeah, at at first um, he kind of or the the authorities when he told them about it thought that it was uh, like Japanese soldiers and was like um, like a, a a raid or whatever that had gone wrong. Um, but that wasn't the case. They, they uh, looked at the bones and figured out, no, they're like old. Like this isn't like something that happened recently. Um, cause you have to remember this was like world war two. So they thought it was something that was like around the war, but it wasn't at all, <clears throat> but they didn't know what the fuck it was. Right. Um, and what's made it kind of harder to figure out over the years is that unfortunately some real fucking idiots, um, have over time and also recently thought it was a good idea to take some of the artifacts, including the bones, from this site. Yeah. Yo, that's how people get cursed. I know, right? Um, <laughs> that's tr- how you die. Trigger a the start of a supernatural episode. premature death. <laughs> right. Hey, you see this bone I brought back from India? Sam. <laughs> um. So these, uh, you know, stupid looters, you know, sightseers, um, and also the frequent. Uh, rock slides that happen at this location and and other causes have made this um you know really difficult site to to kind of like um examine right with traditional kind of anthropological um you know ways of 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 kind of looking at things it's a very disturbed site as as i guess they say a problematic site was another word that i, I saw come up in is my it because it's like hard to get to or it's difficult to get to it is very remote and uh like i said it's it's sort of um not able to be accessed in some ways for a lot of the year but also just because the the remains have just been so moved and and whatever by all these factors that um it, it makes it hard to figure out what exactly is going on. Um, so the, the local people with the kind of traditional, um, explanation for this, uh, site was, um, for what happened is, is this kind of legendary story about a, a king and a queen on a pilgrimage. Um, and it was, uh, according to Wikipedia, the king of Kanauj, Raja Jasva, uh, Jas Daval, maybe, with his pregnant wife, Rani Balampa. And uh, the pilgrimage to the, quote, nearby shrine of the mountain goddess Nanda Devi, um, uh, close quote, is a real pilgrimage that happens every 12 years and may go back as far as the 8th century CE. Oh, wow. There's only, like, real documentary evidence of it back to, like, the 16th century, I think. But there are some indications that it may go back much further on, like, um, I can't remember exactly, but some more vague sources. So, according to that local legend, the king, the queen, their attendants, dancers, like, all their, their, their whole party, right? They were having a party, and they were making their way, yeah, you can think of it like, yeah, they're, they're kind of, like, bumping along, uh, <laughs> making their way through, uh, Rupkund, right, through this downtown. valley. Now, while doing so, they apparently were actually, they were having a little bit too good of a time, I guess, um, they weren't showing the proper deference, to the goddess, um, oh. and therefore, you know, with their dancing and the partying and generally not acting like the penitent pilgrims that they were supposed to, as punishment, the goddess Nanda Devi, according to legend, literally struck them down by sending enormous hailstones as large as nine inches across, oh, killing every single member of the party. And leaving, of course, the skeletal remains to lie under the water and around the Rupkund Lake for the next 1,200 years. Even the king and queen? Everyone, yes. Even even the king and queen. <sighs> she was pregnant. It's, it's a legendary story. Probably not real people. But, yeah, that, that is very sad. Some version of this story kind of always centered around this freakish hail storm, which apparently these are real, like where they have these huge, huge hail uh, storms uh, in this area sometimes, um, kind of pummeling these, you know, hundreds of people to death. In this one instance, um, that kind of persisted um, in popular uh, understanding, um, even to, to the modern day, like, uh, into the 2000s. That, uh, the, a sort of a version of this is what most people thought happened, uh, basically until about 2004. 
That was when um, there was a, a, another analysis done, and then the one I'm gonna uh, kind of mainly uh, take my um, what was kind of my one of my main sources is the most recent and complete analysis done to date, which was a paper published in uh, Nature Communications very recently, August twentieth of twenty nineteen. Oh, um, like and last then, week, <laughs> right? The press around that is kind of how I I heard about this story, and there was a technical paper uh, by Edwin Arni et al., and many, many other people. Um, and they did, uh, like I said, this this kind of more complete analysis. So there are a lot of mysteries that remain even after that, but, but some of that has been kind of... Um, uh, defined a little bit more precisely by by these analyses. So uh, what Arnie and, and his colleagues did was they took dozens of bones, bone fragments, and several teeth for analysis, and they suggest uh, subjected these samples to a battery of uh, what are called bioarchaeological analyses. Isn't that cool? Doesn't that sound cool? Doesn't sound like it would be a real thing, but I guess it is. Bioarchaeological analyses. Okay. So lo okay, looking at okay. an ancient remains, essentially, to to see what you know what they can tell us. So these included tests like ancient DNA, stable isotope diet, dietary reconstruction, which I'll get into, radiocarbon oh, dating, and osteological analysis. The the looking closely at bones. Yeah, go ahead. The diet. I know you said you're going to get into it. The diet reconstruction. Yeah. Without like knowing what that is, it sounds. Very fascinating. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> it sounds like you shouldn't be able to do that. You shouldn't be able to tell me generally what people were eating that lived a thousand years ago. Right? Like, that's crazy. That's cray-cray in a good way. Oh, did um, you make that up? I stole it from Cleveland, so <laughs> I will... That's who it was, right? That's cray-cray in a good way. It's, that's Cleveland, right? Am I well, I've never that? heard it before, so I, I, it sounds like Cleveland. I'm pretty sure it's Cleveland. <laughs> I, I was like sources. super proud of you for making that up. <laughs> no, not at all. Um, so what, what, what the, the tests that I talked about, what, what those showed most definitively was that um, these individuals were not, in fact, killed in one event. That's they just over and over again. They all reinforced that this was not one single hailstorm or anything that killed one group of hundreds of people in one single event. Rather, the dating of the samples showed clearly that there were at least two events about a thousand oh, years apart. What? Around somewhere between the 8th to 10th centuries common era, and then a separate incident somewhere between the 18th and 20th centuries common era. So it could have been as as some of them are way more recent. Than some others. of them are way more recent, like a thousand years apart. Wow. There's kind of this clear bifurcation. That's wild. That we'll kind of keep coming back to. So by further refining the timing of particular samples, they also showed that it's highly likely that there were also more than one event that caused the ancient deaths as well. So you know, earlier in that time period and later in that time period, essentially. And a prior osteological assessment, right, of the looking at the bones of many bones from Skeletal Lake cited in that Nature Communications paper, but that happened before, um, seemed to rule out an ancient plague as the cause. Um, it, it did show that okay. certain individuals um, uh, had, quote, unhealed compression fractures, close quote. What does that mean? Um it, it Essentially, it's like um, being hit with a, a, a blunt force. But not, um, you know, something like a sledgehammer, something more rounded that left an impression, Ugh. but didn't necessarily like pierce the skull. Um, you know, again, not to get into too many gruesome details, but again, we're we're trying to figure what exactly happened here, a thousand, twelve hundred years ago, which which is is nuts. But um, with with those kind of wounds, uh, seem to indicate in, on the heads and the shoulders of certain individuals is that this could have been that freakishly large hail of legend. Like, that could actually have been the cause of some of these people's deaths, um, okay. which does seem pretty crazy. So maybe it was a little bit true. Yeah. There, there's, like, it there came could, from somewhere, yeah. Exactly. There could have been some truth in that legend, which sometimes there is. Um, of course, it also could have been, like, a billion other things. Who knows? It's not entirely clear, but but it doesn't rule that out. Uh, which I thought was interesting. So the the osteological analysis also seemed to group the samples into two groups. Like I'm saying, this bifurcation 
um, one group being larger than, than the other. And that bifurcation of the samples was also reinforced by the more, uh, by, by the DNA analysis. Um, the researchers were able to isolate 38 uh, clear DNA profiles through a, a very, very complex process that they get, like, into the freaking weeds in, in, in that paper. I nice. didn't understand, like, 90% of so I was just, like, scrolling through, through parts because I was like, I don't know. I don't know what they're talking about. I understand the part where they're telling me the narrative and what they did, but <laughs> this, I don't know. There's, like, stuff that's, like, copywritten in here. I don't know what's going on. So, um, yeah, they, they uh, started by essentially cleaning the bones very well and then extracting bone powder. That's what they mainly did their analyses on with a sterile dentist drill. And what they found confounded their expectations. Like they said that in the paper, uh, uh, which one of my sources described the that verbiage in the paper as being like very... Um, uh, sort of hyperbolic for a sort of staid scientific paper, right? They were essentially saying, like, we don't, we, this was, like, completely not what we were expecting. Like, what happened? this is crazy. Um, sort of several things. The, the several things that they found continued to confound their expectations, just, like, over and over again. Um, so they identified 23 genetic males and 15 genetic females. That was not expected. Especially by people who thought that this was some kind of military expedition, you know, um, in which one would expect a smaller proportion of women than men than they found, presumably. None of the individuals was closely related. Like, none of them that they looked at were related to each other at all, Hmm. familially. Refuting the notion that this was some kind of, you know, group of families or something, right? Uh, Probably. So in terms of the genetic ancestry, the samples fell into three categories that the Nature Communications paper authors call Rukkund A, B, and C. They created these groups by comparing the samples to um, thousands of ancient and modern samples from known places, right? To, To see essentially, okay, where were these people from? Or more precisely, where does their DNA match up with where people are from now? Which may not be where people were from 1,200 years ago, yeah, but that's yeah. a complicating factor, right? So Rupkund A, that group, was made up of 23 individuals that matched the DNA of individuals currently living in South Asia. Places like India, Pakistan, Nepal, Bhutan, etc. Which is kind of what you would expect, right? You'd expect all of these you people to be You said it was near Nepal, group. right? Uh, yes, this is sort of northern India in the Himalayas, you know, near, very near Nepal. Rupkun B, that group, was made up of 14 individuals, and this was the really, really big surprise and everything, that those people matched the modern DNA of West Eurasian people, and more specifically, people who currently live in Greece and Crete. So this is pretty far, thousands and thousands of miles away, exactly. Um, and the Rupkun C group, which was one individual was sort of harder to pin down, but uh, clearly seemed to be most closely related to current East Asian inhabitants. Um, uh, Han Chinese, uh, uh, to to a large degree. So, and that's kind of weird, too. So, um, by, and, and the, um, the Rupkun A group were the more ancient ones. The Rupkun B and C group were the more recent ones. So the, those were also two kind of groupings. So um, also, and this is the uh, uh, the dietary uh, analysis. So by looking at animal and plant minerals deposited in the bone collagen, researchers. Um, so it, it, essentially, what happens is when you when you eat something, right? Um, the minerals, the specific minerals in those, you know, plants or animals replace some of the minerals that are are in your bones, right, within the calcium of your bones for about 10 to 20 years. It's it's a record of about 10 to 20 years of what you were eating. Not exactly, but the general nature of it. And um, what they're able to do is is, uh, glean some general insight as to the the diet of these long-dead individuals by, by looking at the isotopes in those which tell you where they're from. It's complicated, it's, I know. It's just science so right. much. It's I know, just so I know, much. <laughs> I know. So, um, 
but the upshot, right, is what, essentially what the, the tale that this tells is that some individuals in the last 10 to 20 years of their life had eaten, eaten a diet most associated with um, South and Southeast Asia. They said it was high in uh, millet, which I didn't know what that was, but apparently billions of people eat it. So, great. You didn't, like, Google it? Uh, no. <laughs> so, and that's the Rupkund A individuals that had their DNA most closely matching South Asians. So the other group, Rupkund B and C, um, had a diet more reminiscent of Europe and Eurasia. Um, and it also showed that these that those individuals had not subsisted on seafood, suggesting okay. that they had lived far from the sea, um, which is to say not actually in Greece or Crete. So they had that ancestry, but maybe those in particular individuals maybe weren't actually from there. It seemed, that seemed to suggest, perhaps. So, instead of kind of solving the mystery, right, of Skeleton Lake, the researchers had kind of multiplied the mysteries, <laughs> right? Um, even um, if the ancient hailstorm theory is it, true in part, maybe, um, that's only one of at least three separate incident incidents that we oh, now God. have to account for, right? So that just that in and of itself has tripled the mystery, and uh, tripled the mystery. And why were they uh, were all these people around Rupkin Lake to begin with, right? We we have we still have no idea. I wonder if it's changed a lot. Like maybe it used to be not so remote. You know, a thousand years ago. I don't know. Maybe I'm not sure how much. Yeah, people know about that. Um, it did, yeah, that didn't really come up in my research too much. Um, but well, a, a little bit because we do know that e even in those ancient times, it it may have been um, part of the path or was probably part of the path to the shrine of Nanda Devi, the goddess that I mentioned earlier. This is that um, oh. pilgrimage every twelve years okay. at at this point at least. So anyway, that that may make sense for again that Rupkund A group, right? The South Asians, um, who may have been undertaking this uh this uh, religious journey. But it's a bit of a stretch to think that this one East Asian and this these many people who seem to have Mediterranean ancestry were also, you know, undertaking that spiritual journey for a religion that wasn't endemic to their area. I wouldn't rule it out. It's not outside the realm of possibility. You know, people convert, um, and, you know, people you wouldn't expect to be of one religion maybe, and maybe they, they did become pilgrims for some reason, and that's why they ended up there too, but it, it's, it seems unlikely. Um, more likely, I think, is that um, there are, you know, was a completely different reason, but I, I don't know what that is. That's not, yeah. I'm not solving <laughs> any mysteries here. So, um, further adding to the mystery is the researcher's inability, despite diligent research, to find a single mention of an expedition of Westerners going missing in this part of the Himalayas around that time. They just can't match it up to any story that people have known of. You know, some expedition that went into the Himalayas in the 19th century and were lost. They can't find it, but they're they're going to keep looking, I guess. So David Reich, one of the senior authors of that Nature Communications paper, uh, put it like this uh, to the to to the Atlantic: "Quote, it may be even more of a mystery than before. It was unbelievable because the type of ancestry we find in about a third of the individuals is so unusual for this part of the world." Close quote. Hmm. So that's kind of the the nugget of the mystery. And we, we've done some mysteries like this before, you know, um, like the, the one about the, 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 the Tarim mummies. You know, how did these people end up at this place in this time? It's, it's sort of a mystery in and of itself. So more analyses of more bones and hopefully better preservation of the site, right? These dumb fuckers not taking away human remains. Mm. Um, Which is creepy. Like, that's so weird. Who does that? <laughs> Uh, not so only is it like stupid. super illegal and like immoral it's also creepy yeah and, like, like what kind of person does that <laughs> i don't know it's weird so anyway um hopefully we'll have some more light shed on this in the future but um for now it's very mysterious and will remain so so skeleton lake mystery lake rupkin lake yeah don't go don't go there just read about it i don't, no one needs to go there i don't know it's it was like on atlas obscura you know that was one of my main sources or one of my sources too but so it's, it's not like, like a burial ground that's the first thing i thought that came up a little bit in my research but honestly not very much there was one person who was like uh guys like 
clearly this is just a burial ground. Like, why are we even like talking about this? But I don't know. Maybe I, maybe it's just cause I want it to be more intriguing than that, but I'm, I'm not sure. But I think the different time gaps, that's weird. Right. But the thinking there is maybe people have been using it as a burial ground for a long time, but then wouldn't they be more continuous? Exactly. And not versus to these two separate. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's very mysterious. It's, it's a mystery lake for sure. For sure. So my sources uh, were Robin George Andrews at the New York Times, Rachel Gottman at The Atlantic, Edwin Arne et al. at Nature Communications, Caroline Floyd at The Weather Network, Dylan at Atlas Obscura, uh, Gemma Tarlock at Discover, and Michelle Starr at Science Alert. You say Gemma? How is that spelled? G-E-M-M-A. That's Gemma. I, well, excuse me, Gemma. <laughs> I do apologize. Uh, it could be Gemma, but... I don't know. That's usually pro- pronounced Gemma. Well, in, in the unlikely event that wrong. someone named Gemma or Gemma is listening to this pod, please email us um, at thingy at gmail.com. By the way, Millet... Yeah. ...is... It's it's like it's, a grain, right? It's all it's 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 actually referred to a grain often, but it's actually a seed. Oh, so it's like a huge staple in diets because it's also glue, not glucose, gluten, gluten free, gluten free, and ah. and 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 so it, it's a lot like quinoa, barley, oh, okay. wheat, and you knew all that beforehand. Totally, you didn't, you yeah. Didn't just I Google didn't, that. Google what's Google? <laughs> Google. <laughs> Chloe, what's your mystery for the week? My mystery for the week is a missing persons case. Right, because we've been watching this one is, Disappeared. <laughs> yeah, at first I was like, this one, I was like, okay, like, I'll watch this. Like, the, the description sounds good. And then I was like, oh, like, there's a guy that they, like, it's pretty clear that, that it's him, but they mm. have no evidence. And then I'm like, wait, there's so much more than I thought Mm-mm. to it. Okay. Okay, so let's go. Two. So I am going to talk about the disappearance of Jody Hoosentrout. So first, let's talk about Jody, who's in truth herself. So, um, at the time she disappeared, she was 27. Um, she's super ambitious, and she was a news anchor for Mason City, Iowa. Hmm. Uh, she always knew she wanted to be on TV. You know, she was like very personable and very bubbly. Everybody always talked about how great of a personality she had, and like, um. Uh, even her sister, uh, Joanne was like, you know, like every, you know, there's, there's a pretty face, right. But there's also like, she had the personality to match. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, her father died at age 13 from colon cancer and they were really close and it like had a pretty big impact on her. Mm-hmm. She was athletic. Um, and her and her father actually bonded over golf and she was really good at it. Like she did tournaments oh, cool. and stuff. Um, oh, she could play golf. she okay so she grew up in long prairie minnesota a small town and she had always wanted to get out of there right she's always wanted to be on tv wanted to like dream you know dreamed big and she was actually a flight attendant for a few years so she did do a lot of traveling um and she eventually went into the news business she attended saint cloud university and became the starring news anchor at the school station Eventually, uh, she started recording and anchoring for a KMIT station in Mason City, Iowa. Um, so that was not, it wasn't like a big break, but it was like a job that she loved and she like worked the morning shift. Uh, she worked the morning shift and the noon uh, shift as well. She made friends really easily and it was kind of a stressful environment. So be because of that, all of the coworkers and colleagues and stuff, they're all really close. They're all friends. They went out to the bars all the time and like would wind down and all that good stuff. She went missing on June 27th, 1995. So her morning call time is 3 AM. Yeah. I was like, Oh, okay. Um, so, and Jody could be a, a little late sometimes, so it wasn't super out of character that she was running a little bit late, but she wasn't like, oh, it's 4.30, like an hour and a half late. And mm. so she, um, the producer, her name is Amy Coons, she eventually calls her, and Jody answers the phone, and she's like, oh, oh my gosh, oh, I'm so sorry, like, I'll be there in 20 minutes. Like, she, she slept in. Mm. But she never showed up. 
Amy had to substitute and host the show herself that day. Oh my god! Because Jody never showed up. Police were called eventually. Um, actually, after the show ended around seven a.m. And so they go over, they do a welfare check, they ride over to her apartment, they notice that the car was still in the parking lot, and they did some searching and looked around, and they, when they got to her car, they found her shoes lying there, they found a hairdryer and keys that were scattered on the ground. What? Um, they also found a palm print palm print on the outside of the car there were drag marks also found in the silt nearby that was leading away from the car so it seems like she was attacked when i heard hair dryer i was like oh i bet she was like had i bet she had like wet hair and like was getting in the car and was like i'll do this when i get there and like she dropped her hair dryer like somebody attacked her from behind or something like that that's so weird it's bizarre at like five in the morning yeah like four thirty, five in the morning Mm -hmm. uh so they searched the apartment as well. The apartment itself looked pretty normal. Like nothing was really out of place. Nothing was like super disturbing or anything like that. They found her journal sitting on her bedtime table and that was also pretty normal as well. It was very like positive. The um, investigators on the episode talked about it. it was like a pretty positive journal just about herself and her ambitions and her career and how she just wanted to like get into the bigger TV scene and stuff like that. Um, and she never mentioned like having problems with any with anyone, and mm. other people didn't necessarily necessarily have problems with her. No known enemies. Right. They also noted that the toilet seat was found up, which is weird. Hmm. Like, because she lived alone. Yeah. So, like, was there a male there? I don't know. I didn't. Hmm. I, they mentioned that. I was like, I don't really know how like big of a clue that is or what it is. But I mean, when, it has some merit, I suppose. I guess. Um. So. A few, so they, of course, they do what, you know, first thing investigating, they start asking neighbors, right? A few neighbors say that they heard screaming at around 4.30 in the morning. However, residents were really used to loud noise because this is a very big apartment complex, number one. Number two, they're also right next to a campground. Mm. So this wasn't something people were like, oh no, noise, call 911, you know? Mm Mm-hmm. A neighbor driving back to work that day also noted that he noticed a light-colored van parked in front of the lot, just, like, idling there with this, with this, its lights on. Um, and the police actually, like, which I thought was, like, super clever. They actually went out around to, like, the newspaper services and the post mail to, like, ask everybody, like, hey, like, because they had trucks like that. Mm-hmm. And, like, it was around 4.30, so they'd be starting their routes right. then. But, like, nobody was mm-hmm. there. They, they never, rolled that out. Yeah, they yeah. rolled that out. So this is when the investigation starts. The police contact, I think it was after, oh, when was she considered abducted? I think it was like 24 hours in. Um, so the police contact the family and they, and so she, they live in Minnesota. And so they ha- head over to Iowa. The case got very, very popular. Like I said, she's a, she's a TV news anchor, right? Rumors started to spread too. There was a lot of misinformation, like, some people said that there was, like, a lot of blood found at the scene, and there was, like, it was, like, all over the place, and this, then the other thing. It was much more brutal than it was, and that that's not true. So often happens. Yeah. The apartment, and it was a small town, too, mm. so word got out really fast. The apartment complex itself was, like, filled with people just wandering around, like, being curious, and, like, oh, this is where she lived, and, like, I wonder what's going on. Um, especially, you know, she's just, she's a familiar face. People, right. like, know who she is. Right. So Jody had also been stalked before. Mm. Nine months before her disappearance, she actually put in a report about an incident where a black truck had followed her while she was jogging. And so what she actually had to like run into like somebody's house oh and like knock and like hey they like hey like yeah I'm really like, freaked I'm out being right followed. now yeah um that's not. Nice. Yeah, she told her sisters and her friends that she didn't feel safe and that she eventually started taking, like, self-defense classes. Um, and that truck was never found. They ne- there was never really anything that came out of that um, report. So, this is when they start looking at John Van Sice. Now, John Van Sice is a good friend of Jody's. He stated that he was over at her house that night. and Or, no, no, that she 
was over at his house that night and they were watching a video from her surprise birthday party that John himself like organized for her like oh they are having such a good time laughing this then the other thing when police looked at the last few days leading up to her disappearance his name kept coming up so they went to him right away he was also like really inserting himself into the investigation mm. uh and that's always a red flag yeah they they never had an intimate or romantic relationship or anything like that. Uh, the one of the sisters in the episode talks about how Jody would talk about John and someone else and John and this person, this person, this person it wasn't like right. he was like anything in particular. They were really good friends and really close mm-hmm. and stuff like that. Um, he also spoke about her a lot to the media and he always talked about her in past tense like oh she was Mm. my really good friend she was so amazing and he also said uh that he was quote the last person to see her alive end quote (laughs) well that's uh yeah either inartful uh (laughs) verbiage there or a confession essentially (laughs) i mean that's like if somebody said that to jake peralta he'd be like gotcha Nailed. Right. Um, okay. Nine, nine. Nine, nine. <laughs> so, John and Jody, you know, they went out to the bars all the time together. They're co-workers, um, group of friends. John's described as a, quote, charmer. And he had a lot of friends and was huge in the social scene and, like, went out to the bars pretty often. He liked buying girls drinks. This and the other thing. He was also recently divorced. He was also 20 years older than her. Uh, had once lived, and he also, yeah, he also had once lived in the same apartment complex as, as Jody mm. as well. So when the he was interviewed, his story was always consistent. It was always the same. It checked out. He said that Jody, or no, the police noted that Jody had been on a golf outing before going over to his place to watch the video. Um, and when police looked into the story, they like detailed the timeline more, and they saw that it didn't really add up. Mm. Now. So, police report that Jody left the golf event around 8 o'clock that night, and the police know she made a call at 8.24. The problem with this for me is that, like, just because she made a phone call doesn't mean she, she couldn't have been right. at his house. Right, But right. they, like, talked about it, like, oh, there's no way, blah, blah, blah. She made a call at 8.24. They're saying it was, like, a tight timeline for her to, like, come over and, like, watch a video and then, like, go home. Unless there's something I, I missed. Maybe there were more details about that call. Mm. <clears throat> And there also might be stuff that the police knows that they're not releasing. Right, That, that right. typically happens. Uh, that call was to a friend named Kelly Torson, and Kelly didn't answer the phone, but Jody spoke with her husband, and he, she was like, oh, like, just, like, leave her totally me message when she calls back, and the husband reported... He talked to the police, too, and he was like, yeah, like, we actually had a really long conversation. Like, she was totally fine and high spirits. She was actually talking about, like, the skiing trip that she had gone on that weekend and, like, this and the other thing. It was just, it, it was pretty normal. Jody Stanley was also a little weirded out by John. Like, when they met up with him, they just got weird vibes. They said he was strange. They talked about how he was a bit too gleeful and almost, it almost like he wanted to be interviewed. At one point, he named his... At one point, he named his big fancy boat after her. Wow. And family and friends were like, hey, this is kind of weird, Jody." And she's like, oh, no, I think it's kind of funny. Like, but, yeah. I don't yeah. know how to feel about that. Yeah. Um, but also, like, it's not like they weren't strangers or anything. Like, they were, like, genuinely good friends. So, mm. I don't know. He's kind of weird. Eventually, the... Uh, Family, oh, no, no. Yeah, so when they talk about his alibi, he says he was home alone and he woke up around 5 a.m. to take a morning walk, but there was never enough evidence to search his car or apartment or anything. You know, he, there was really nothing to bring him down on. Mm -hmm. Eventually, the family headed back to Minnesota, but they stay in contact with investigators the whole time. There was no reason for them to really be there um, at that point. Months go by. No leads. Uh lots of combing through tips that ended up being bogus by winter of 1999. They did have a promising lead. A man named Anthony Jackson wrote a rap song called stiffen in tiffin. That was supposed to be about Jody Hoosentrup. A dead body 
in Tiffin, Iowa. Tiffin, Iowa is like a town that's about 200 miles from Mason City. He had a girlfriend that looked a lot like Jody that he had broken up with five days before her disappearance. They looked into his background and found that he was living in Mason City at the same time that she was and that he actually lived two blocks from where she worked. And as at the time they're investigating it, he was in, in prison because turns out he's nasty. He raped four women in 18 days. Oh so he was like God. a serial rapist. Yeah. And he was arrested. They searched his car and they also found a gun, handcuffs, handcuffs and duct tape. Uh, he was described as being like really violent and somebody who would snap, like would be calm one moment and then like something would trigger him and he would be really violent. Uh, and that's one of the reasons why his girlfriend was like trying to get away from him. Police also went to Tiffin, Iowa, and they combed the area with search dogs, but they never found any evidence. Uh, a couple years later, in summer of 2002, Gary Peterson. So Gary Peterson is a also a reporter, a news anchor in South Minnesota, and it was kind of like a competing, like quote unquote competing, um, station with uh, the KMIT where Jody worked at. And so he had been following the case. It freaked him out. And as a news reporter, he gets a lot of tips about anything, anywhere, and. He got a tip. He actually he got he got a weird letter from a psychic in California that was willing to do an analysis of any cold case, no charge. Before <laughs> you face, you're like, Arr. um, he handed the case off to Josh Benson, another reporter, and Josh looked into it. And Josh was like, okay, like. I don't know about this. He was like skeptical about this kind of stuff, but they decided to look into it anyway. And uh, the station ended up running a short piece about her, and the case becomes more and more popular after that. They actually aired a 13-part series looking into the theories and tips that were oh, coming wow. in. Um, yeah, just to test their validity and explore and stuff like that. So the case became even more popular than it was before. A tip Gary Peterson and Josh Benson uh, eventually look into involves the death of... This is weird. Involves the death of Billy Pruin, a friend of Jody's. Now, Billy Pruin lived southwest of Mason City. He was discovered one night on the floor of his farmhouse, dead from a gunshot wound. Uh, and this had happened only weeks before Jody's disappearance. And they knew it was unusual because he still... Okay, so they talked about how he was, like, a very, like, neat person. And he, like, drove his tractor back home and didn't take his shoes off, which he, like, that wasn't something he ever did. There was dirt in the house. And he was just, like, found on the ground with a gunshot wound um, in his back. The police uh, ruled it a suicide. <laughs> I know, you're like, always what? Jody, it really bothered her. Uh, she hated it. She And then she started talking about looking into it herself mm -hmm. and trying to find out what happened. Mm -hmm. But um, none of the family or friends really know if like that's something she actually did or not. Um, they, it was just something she talked mm -hmm. about. Wasn't They don't know if it what she did. But it's like, if she did, maybe she stumbled on something that right. she shouldn't have. And, right. Yeah. Um, friends and family couldn't believe it. They are like, this is no way... Um, there's no way Billy Prune would commit suicide it didn't make sense for him to kill himself especially and gary peterson looked into this especially because there was um he had life insurance and one of the one of the life insurance clauses said that if his death was due to suicide uh between like this period of time and this period of time the police or not the police the um the policy wouldn't pay out right, right. that's pretty typical so it's like why there was really no motivation there and at the time, it was only a few months away from that clause expiring. Hmm. So, Peterson uh, looked into the incident himself, and he read the autopsy report. He said that the entrance wound, this was on the medical examiner's part, on the tax no, no, medical examiner's report, said that the entrance wound was bigger than the exit wound, and it was in, like, the middle of his back. Uh, so, he believes that Billy was just murdered, shot in the back. The family eventually got the cause of death ruled to be undetermined. Um, and, and really, that's, that's about it. That's about all they know. Uh, 
Gary Peterson and Josh Benson keep in touch with the family and tell them all about their research. Um, they set up findjoni.com to open up the story more to the public. And there, that's where they keep people updated and they write a lot about their research, including um, interviews and uh, stuff with the family. And they keep um, tabs on stories that are coming out. And they also have a really nice timeline on there. Uh, they also looked into they start following a lot of tips right so one of the tips they looked into was about a prisoner named thomas corskadden who had a light colored van like the one the witness mentioned and he was a known sex offender from minnesota and like i said he people got tips that he was involved he had a long history of being like a weirdo like a peeping tom he was known to be a stalker he actually mentioned um Jody's name to the prisoners at some points mm. and he talked about how he knew what happened to her and he actually wrote like a deposition and like talked about her and said he knew what happened but they never found they never found any evidence never found anything even tying him to her disappearance in June of 2008 Jody's private journal is leaked to the media huge hugely problematic for, for many reasons right uh, yeah, so in it, you know, she mostly talked about wanting to move to a bigger city and a bigger TV scene. The newspaper publishes it, and then they hand it over to the police. The police track down the source and find that it was, uh, they find out who it, who it was. It was one of their retired police officer's wives, mm. which is weird, right? Yeah. But, like, this, this, uh, officer, he was a chief of police, so he had documents that belonged to the case, and so he accidentally took some home, just something shoved in old paperwork, which is like crazy. Uh, they never found, they like interviewed her, but they never found a motive. But also it's like, it's not something that should have happened in the first place, you know? Like, yeah. come on. Yeah. Uh, and one of the more intriguing tips and this spiral into a whole thing so in 2009 mason city police officer maria ol comes forward about a conversation that she overheard she says that apparently police officers had police officers had something to do with jody's disappearance uh she heard she had actually heard the tip two years earlier and she had kept the info to, her, to herself because she she was a police officer herself and she didn't want to get in trouble uh she contacted uh, our main man, Gary Peterson, found his info on Find Jody uh, on the Find Jody site. So the story is that Maria Ol was investigating a complaint about a party, and um, there she's there, like um, clearing out the party, making sure everybody gets home, blah blah blah. And she overhears two people talking. One man said he knew that three officers from the Mason City PD were involved, and. Uh, they also talked about the fact that, or yeah, she also talked about the fact that her pastor had received a phone call from another pastor in Minnesota relaying basically the same information. Hmm. So, and then they looked at this pastor, Pastor Shane Philpot contacted the police and told Officer Ole, who also happened to be his sister-in-law, said that, hey, like, you should go to your superiors about, like, he goes to the police and then he said, he tells her that she should go to the police too. Hmm. The pastor talked with the police, but at that point, him and, and both Maria as well felt like nobody was really listening to them, felt like they were being glossed over. They were very frustrated by the system at that point. Um, and then soon the family hears about the rumor and that the police were involved. Um, but they really try to stay out of it. They try to dismiss it, especially since they had been working pretty closely with the Mason City Police and they were pretty, you know, they had gained their confidence and trust and stuff like that. Uh, Maria Ol was actually put on administrative leave in September of 2010, and then she was fired in August of 2011. Uh, she was accused of mishandling information and possibly evidence. Yeah. Yeah. It's, sounds trumped up. It's messed up. Yeah. And a psychologist actually finds her not fit for duty, and she appeals the ruling to the commission, and she tries to get reinstated as an officer, but they say no. They just totally reject her. This is when, for me, this is when shit gets real, right? So Gary Peterson looks into these two informants, right, uh, that had the information that Maria overheard. 
he finds out that both of them had recently died, that one died from a suspected overdose, and that there was a needle found next to the body, but there were, but he read the toxicology report and there weren't, weren't any drugs found in the system, in his mm. system, which is weird. And then the other died from stab wounds. So I couldn't find any more information about these two. I really wanted to get more into it, but I, there, was, there wasn't much there about them, but it was kind of weird to me. Like, yeah. that's weird, right? I don't know. After an internal investigation, the district rules that there were not any law enforcement officers involved in her disappearance. So, currently, John Van Sice is, uh, at the moment, so this is an open case. Mm -hmm. um, he is a person of interest in the case, but, you know, again, there's really no evidence. Uh, Jody Houston Truitt was legally declared dead in 2001, in March of 2018, the Mason City Police obtained search warrants for all of, uh, for any cars that had belonged to John Van Syce. Um, and today he maintains his innocence. He continues to talk to the media. Um, and 24 years later, the case remains unsolved. Yeah. There's so many different um, theories and stuff, you know. So there's so little to go on, but so many. There's a lot of weird coincidences, <sighs> yeah. and like, and so so many bodies. There's four bodies that may be connected in some way, or maybe they're not at all connected, right? To any of any um, of them to each other. I don't think they ever found her body. Oh, that's right. I guess so. So I mean, technically, she may still be alive. Who knows? Seems very, very unlikely. So, uh, my sources yes. disappeared season six, episode 10. I looked at findjody.com and I looked at a CBS News article with details from the 48 hour episode by John Axelrod, which is a dope last name. Hello, my name is John <laughs> Axelrod. Um, and a, um, a more recent, I think this was from like about a month ago, an article in the Des Moines Register by Danielle Gare um, detailed stuff about the search warrants and and stuff like that. But okay. yeah, that is the disappearance of Jody Hoosentruth. Okay. I hope she's... It's... It, yeah, that one's sad. No, it's, yeah. And it's so weird, right? All those disappeared episodes are, like, super tragic, but it's a pretty compelling series, too. I don't know. We started with... We started with that girl, Matrice, right? I know. Was it Matrice... R Matrice Richardson. Richardson, yep. right, yeah. That was... Yeah. If, if you guys don't know the story of Matrice Richardson, I recognized the name, and I was like, oh, like, oh, I remember this when we watched it, and I was like, I didn't know actually how bizarre... I knew it was weird, but yeah. I didn't know it was that weird. Mm. Um, definitely look up the case of Matrice Richardson. It's yeah. pretty popular. Yeah. Uh, it's a good one. So should we do some weird shit, shit in the news? In the news. In the news. Um, yeah, let's do it. Oh, unless I just closed all of my I'll tabs. go first on this trip. Yeah, go first. Uh, got my story from HuffPost. Uh, Ayo. By David Moy. Colorado woman fights off bear with baseball bat. And it's exactly ah! what it sounds like. We, we There's a video. You can watch the video. But uh, essentially, these uh, mother bear and her two cubs... Uh, found their way into this home in this sort of more or less rural Colorado, right? And um, the uh, homeowners come downstairs and are the, sort of the bear and the homeowners confront each other, right? And the bear swipes at the, at the man and they, they start hitting each other and uh, the, uh, the wife, uh, I'll try to find her name here, but um, their names are John Johnson and George Ann Field. Um, she, um, as she described it, picked up the bat and started hitting the bear. And, uh, basically she said she felt like there was a lightning bolt going through her body. You what know, a bad it was, bitch. It was this, and she, and she, what did she say? She was like, I'm, I'm strong. Like I'm old. Oh yeah. yeah I'm she's, she's like, I'm not weak. I'm yeah. old, but I'm not weak. I thought yeah. that was great. And, uh, yeah, the, uh, between the two of them, they, they, they fought off the bears uh, the, the the mother bear mainly, and um, were able to get away alive and everything. The husband had some very gruesome scratches across his chest, um, but uh, otherwise, so 
Yeah, it was that was pretty crazy. So um, we were wondering how often does that happen? We don't know. Is this a normal thing in some? Yeah, places? I was like, okay, know. like maybe the bear was. They were looking for food or something, yeah. obviously, but. Uh, yeah, they did, like, a pan on their enormous mansion, like, yeah, on the edge of the a, mountains. Nice I was like, house. oh. Nice house. Um, do you have something? I do, I do. So this is from uh, com in a local newspaper from North Carolina. And so this one happened in Raleigh, North Carolina uh, sometime a few weeks ago in Wake County. So basically, okay, so the title is Death of North Carolina Man Found Bloody Wrapped in Christmas Lights Not Suspicious, officials say. <laughs> okay, wait, let me get into this, though, because I don't know that the death is suspicious, but the sun is weird. So, okay, basically, um, they, you know, <sighs> so the son, you know, he finds his dad, calls 911. Uh, and he tells the people that his father looked like he hit his head and then he bled out. He said he put a blanket over him because, quote, because he did not want him exposed, end quote, according to the warrant. Mm. Um, so they get there and they find him dead at the bottom of the stairs uh, by the front door. And there, were, there was a blanket over his head and there were pillar, pillows around him. And um, there was blood everywhere, like down the walls of the hallway near the stairs and at the bottom of the stairs on the handrail. And the son, um, so this is his story. He says he uh, came home the night before around 930 and found the cat dead in the bathroom. Um, according to documents, the son, son said, quote, there was blood everywhere and he took the cat and put it in the freezer wrapped in plastic, end quote. The okay. and that was when he found his uh, dad uh, found at the bottom of the stairs wrapped in Christmas lights and so the son said that he cut his dad loose from the lights and he said that quote his dad asked him for a blanket and pillow which he gave to him and left him on the floor at the bottom of the stairs and then he called his girlfriend to come pick him up and uh, he left and then he returned the next day around one o'clock and he finds his father dead very strange it's story. very, very strange. Um, he told them, they were like, okay, like, what happened? And he told them what happened to the cat is the same thing that happened to his dad. So they actually, their theory, your face right now, <laughs> their theory, investigators were able to determine, okay, quote, according to Curry, investigators were able to determine that the father was taking down Christmas lights in August, when he fell down the stairs and became entangled in the lights. As he was falling, he killed the cat by falling over and landing on it. The man may have suffered a stroke, officials said. Huh. The son put the cat in the freezer to, quote, preserve it, end quote. I see what you were saying earlier. Right? It, yeah. Like, what do I, what am I, what are we supposed to think about this? Uh, I'm not going to think about it anymore. <laughs> Thanks for listening, you guys. You're not happy about that one. <laughs> you disturbed me, but it's fine. It's fine. I thought it was wild. I don't. Rest you know, in peace. Tragic. Yeah. Super tragic. Very tragic. Um, but yeah, thanks. Way, that wasn't great to land on. That's okay. <laughs> um, but the, yeah, thanks for listening for another week. And what are we at? 80, 85 or something at this point? Uh, somewhere around Are there, you anyway. supposed to know? I don't know. Anything. Um, but I do I know this. you guys have a good, go good winding Facebook Wednesday night. Stuff. Yep. Okay. Um, you go to bed with dreams of dead cats in freezers. Oh, God. <laughs> men, men wrapped in uh, Christmas, Christmas lights. lights. Okay, bye. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? 
Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.